HIV remains a persistent health problem for the United States and countries around the world. June marks 40 years since the first official report in CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report of the first five cases of what we now know as HIV. Great progress has happened in the last 40 years in preventing and treating HIV. Yet there is still much to do. I'm Dr. Charles Vega, Health Sciences Clinical Professor at UC Irvine Department of Family Medicine. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Oni Blackstock, who is a CDC Let's Stop HIV Together Clinical Ambassador. Dr. Blackstock is a primary care and HIV physician, researcher, and founder and executive director of Health Justice, a racial and health equity consulting practice. Today, we'll discuss how health and social inequities continue to affect the HIV epidemic. In partnership with the Let's Stop HIV Together campaign, a part of the National Ending the HIV Epidemic Initiative, we have developed a two-part podcast series for the primate audience. Today, we begin our series with a discussion on the role primary care providers can play in ending the HIV epidemic. Let's get started. So, Oni, this month marks 40 years since the first report of what we now know as HIV, then AIDS, in CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. How have you seen the epidemic change throughout your career? Well, thank you, Dr. Vega, for having me on. Um, that's such an important question. So my career in HIV started about um, 15 years ago. And what I've seen is HIV become you know, a much more manageable condition you know, akin to high blood pressure or diabetes. Um, you know, we've also seen medication regimens for people living with HIV become a lot more simplified. So many of my patients today are taking only one pill a day, which definitely makes things easier in terms of adherence um, and getting um, patients virally suppressed. Um, but I also see that, you know, we're continuing to deal with, you know, comorbid conditions, um, as people living with HIV are aging. So again, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, uh, liver disease, and then um, the effects of uh, social and structural determinants um, of health. Um, so thinking about uh, depression, anxiety, um, substance use, those are issues that many of my patients are facing, as well as issues around housing and jobs and how to basically survive day to day. So just to say, um, although we've seen evolution in terms of treatment um, and, um, you know, more and more people being virally suppressed, we see that there are some of the same drivers that have placed patients at risk for HIV still existing today and making it challenging for many um, to still engage in care. Um, we also see that um, black and um, Latino Americans um, increasingly are becoming the majority um, of make up most of new HIV diagnoses. Um, and we also see that HIV stigma persists. So um, we see this with the recent disclosure um, by the actor Billy Porter um, on, on Pose, who was playing someone who was living with HIV, but yet still did not feel safe or comfortable enough to disclose his status. So we still need to work to address um, the social and structural determinants of health inequities, as well as um, HIV stigma. Those are really good points. Uh, thanks very much. And certainly the science uh, around the care of folks with HIV um, has evolved substantially, but we still see these same barriers. Can you go a little bit more into depth about uh, some of the barriers that you see in your practice or that exist nationally in terms of folks seeking out HIV services? Sure. Um, so I think, you know, one of them, which I, I just mentioned, HIV stigma obviously um, plays a role in whether people get 
HIV testing, whether they are engaged in HIV care, if they're HIV positive, whether they take their medication, if they're HIV negative, whether they are um, open or seek out, for instance, PrEP services. So we know HIV stigma plays a huge role in um, accessing care. But then there's also issues such as um, lack of health insurance. We know, for instance, that um, the South is really the epicenter of um, the current HIV epidemic. And there, um, for instance, in the South, Medicaid, for instance, has not been expanded. So we see many people who are potentially at risk for HIV, many people living with HIV, don't have access to health insurance and thus don't have access to um, high quality um, HIV care. Some of the other barriers I would also say again are, you know, high rates of um, being unhoused, um, unemployment. These all make it very difficult for people who may be living with HIV or people who may be um, at risk for HIV to be able to engage in effective um, HIV um, prevention and treatment. You know, if someone's worrying about, you know, for instance, where their next meal is coming from, where they're going to sleep um, that night, you know, taking an HIV test or seeking out PrEP or going to an HIV appointment, you know, unfortunately um, is not the priority because they're really focused on their survival. Right, of course. And, and so it sounds like there's a lot of these, you know, really significant structural barriers such as uh, poverty um, that are and homelessness that's, um, that's affecting care for HIV. Uh, but then there's also these some cultural barriers and stigma. You know, what have you uh, used to try to overcome um, the bar those barriers and, and particularly stigma in the U.S.? Right. So thinking about um, stigma, which, you know, is, I think, hasn't really changed since the beginning of um, the, the epidemic, the first um, case reports, we still see it's, you know, very deeply entrenched. So it includes, you know, addressing stigma, it includes, you know, educating folks about the basics of HIV, also the basics of um, sexual health, you know, ensuring that um, people sort of at all stages of their life are receiving um, you know, update um, non-judgmental, um, non-stigmatizing information around HIV and sexual health that can help to really normalize um, discussions of sexual health, discussions um, of HIV. Um, the CDC has um, a really um, in-depth website and campaign about addressing um, HIV stigma with you know, information about how to avoid um, stigmatizing language. So, you know, thinking about, you know, how do we talk about people living with HIV? How do we talk about people who are at risk um, for HIV? And then also more importantly, what to do when we hear people say stigmatizing comments about people living with HIV or people at risk for HIV. Um, also, public health campaigns can be particularly helpful. Um, when I was uh, assistant commissioner at the New York City Health Department, um, leading the city's response to the HIV epidemic, we had a huge campaign called Made Equal, which really promoted the message of um, undetectable equals untransmittable. So the idea that if someone is taking their medications and they're virally suppressed and they're continuing to um, adhere to their medications, they are at effectively no risk of um, passing HIV to sexual partners. We wanted to make sure that people living with HIV, for instance, knew about that message because many people living with HIV um, have you know, internalized stigma where they've been made to feel as if they're somehow disease vectors. And then we know that the public also has a lot of um, 
a lot of their own thoughts and misconceptions about HIV. So we wanted to get that message out there so that people know that people living with HIV um, who are virally suppressed, who are on their medications, um, you know, and taking care of themselves are um, a, a very, can be potentially very safe sexual partners. So I think campaigns such as that, that really bring attention to, um, you know, the, the facts about living with HIV um, can be really helpful in, helpful in starting to dismantle HIV stigma. That's that's so important, and I really liked um, yeah I like the message uh, that you're promoting around New York City, um, and that kind of messaging can, can make a big difference. It sounds like it really though starts with all of us as healthcare providers, uh, just listening uh, with empathy and understanding, and and providing uh, good information. CDC is a great resource um, as a go-to for that information, because it is so important to to wipe out these uh, significant disparities. Uh, we see in terms of HIV prevalence and HIV care. Uh, you mentioned how it disproportionately affects Black and Latinx uh, populations in the United States. It's, it's now uh, more centered in the South with, with new cases. Um, anything else you can describe regarding health inequities in HIV care itself? Sure. Um, so, you know, again, just speaking a little bit more in depth to the groups that you just mentioned, you know, we see um, today... Um, and, and throughout the, the epidemic, um, you know, men who have sex with men, particularly black and Latino men who have sex with men, um, disproportionately impacted, um, again, black and Latina, uh, transgender women, black and Latina, cisgender women, all um, are, you know, placed at risk because of various social and structural drivers. Um, and so we're seeing, uh, you know, obviously high rates of HIV, um, disproportionately high rates among those groups when it comes to HIV diagnoses, um, when it comes to um, proportion of folks who may not be virally suppressed. Um, we're also seeing, you know, when we think about uh, PrEP uptake, you know, PrEP is a really, um, can be a very uh, helpful and it's a very effective tool in preventing HIV. Um, but when we look at, you know, for instance, diagnoses among um, Black and Latino Americans, and we look at the proportion of Black and Latino Americans um, among PrEP users, we see that, um, there is, you know, underutilization of this really effective tool um, in these communities. And so really thinking about, you know, how can we, you know, ensure that people are aware of PrEP, that people have access to PrEP, and that um, people who are placed at risk for HIV are supported in, in taking, you know, PrEP or um, HIV treatment. Excellent points again. And, you know, PrEP, um, has been a, a significant advancement, um, you know, real game changer potentially in terms of the epidemiology of HIV. Could you address some of the other advancements um, in HIV prevention, HIV care uh, we've seen over the past 40 years? Sure. So um, in addition to PrEP, the, the once a day um, daily pill to prevent HIV infection, there's also PEP, so post-exposure um, prophylaxis, um, which um, an individual can take um, after, immediately after um, a high-risk exposure um, to prevent um, really acquiring, um, you know, an HIV infection. And PEP has been incredibly helpful in both the occupational settings, so healthcare settings, um, but, you know, also sort of in, um, you know, sort of larger society, you know, when people may have had a sexual exposure or um, an injection exposure that may have placed them at risk, um, PEP has been, you know, sort of the unsung cousin of PrEP, but has been a really effective tool in um, preventing HIV infection in those cases. 
Um, we've also, um, you know, obviously seen the emergence of HIV treatment um, as um, prevention. So again, seeing HIV treatment become, you know, much more feasible, lower pill burden. Um, you know, many of my patients who are um, living with HIV, you know, I see them, you know, every six months for follow-up. HIV is not the main issue that many of them are dealing with. Um, you know, more recently, um, related to treatment as prevention, you know, we've over the last few years, really promoting the message of undetectable equals transmittable um, so that people know that when people living with HIV are virally suppressed and taking their medications as prescribed, um, they have effectively no risk of, of transmitting HIV to sexual partners. Um, you know, also more recently, you know, we have newer tools such as, um, you know, injectable cabotegravir, which uh, again can really help with addressing issues around um, daily adherence to a pill. So for individuals who might prefer not to take a pill and might want to take um, their HIV medications using some other uh, method, we now have an injectable option, which is really exciting. We know that when people have options um, and they can make a choice, they're more likely to adhere to that choice. Um, but And so we've had tremendous advancements, um, but we still see, again, that there are some persistent um, health inequities in terms of accessing HIV prevention and treatment, um, and also in terms of outcomes such as viral suppression that we still need to be laser focused on. Right. And, and that makes me think of the fact that, yeah, I've, I've, these inequities have, have existed, um, you know, for, for many years, for, for decades. And, uh, and so one hope we have that, uh, that can help eradicate some of those inequities is, is uh, moving forward with an HIV vaccine. Can you give us any update on that? Sure. Um, yeah, there probably has been you know a lot more attention um, in the general public to HIV vaccine because of you know the very sort of swift development that we saw with COVID nineteen vaccines. So I think there, it feels like there's a lot more excitement and optimism about um, developing a, an effective um, HIV vaccine. Um, I think you know there are many times people make comparisons between the novel coronavirus and, and HIV and why don't we have an HIV vaccine? Um, but I think, you know, we, many people listening may understand that there are some aspects of HIV that make it more challenging to develop um, a vaccine, um, such as, you know, the fact that the virus um, generates and tolerates a lot of different mutations. So making a vaccine that can cover sort of the the variety of, of strains that might live within one individual who's living with HIV can make it really challenging. Um, but um, we know that there's like been substantial progress being made in terms of HIV vaccines that are able to um, evoke or elicit um, a breadth of immune responses that will allow for um, coverage and protection against HIV. And some of these are using um, different types of vectors um, such as herpes virus or adenovirus. And then also looking at um, broadly neutralizing antibodies that um, have ways of um, really protecting the individual against all these different strains. So I think um, there is great progress being made. And I think if we also look to the way that the COVID-19 vaccine was developed that involved, you know, an investment uh, in terms of financial investment and also a lot of collaboration um, between um, folks who've been working on this, um, this type of um, this type of initiative for a while. I think if we have a collaboration in the investment, I think that will definitely push us um, closer to having an effective HIV vaccine. Yeah, I agree. Let's do it. Let's let's <laughs> let's work hard together and uh, and move that vaccine forward. Absolutely. But I, if if it's okay, I want to return back to the space um, between a, a healthcare provider 
and a um, patient for a moment, because not every clinician is comfortable when discussing sexual health or HIV. Um, and so what are your best uh, tools for getting that conversation started with your patients? Yeah, that's such an important question, because I think when providers feel uncomfortable about talking about sexual health with a patient, patients can often feel that, and that can also make them shut down. So I often start conversations, um, you know, with a, a statement that really normalizes um, talking about sexuality and sexual health and um, normalizes the discussion of sexuality as being part of um, routine health care. So just saying, I'm going to, you know, I ask, I'm going to ask you a few questions about sexual health, your sexual health. Um, sexual health is very important to overall health. These are questions that I ask um, all of my patients. And so that really opens the door for patients then to, to ask whatever questions um, they have. Um, I also normalize and just asking about like HIV testing, STI testing. So really telling the patient that I test everyone for HIV and STIs, um, which helps to normalize any concerns that they may have about discussing HIV and STI, um, STIs or um, testing for those. And then I typically then ask um, an open-ended question that really allows the patient to identify, you know, what are the concerns that are most um, important um, to them um, and so may say something like, tell me about your sex life or, you know, what would you say are your biggest um, health questions or concerns? And that allows you to hear sort of the language that the patient is using to describe sexual behaviors, their body, their partners. And then you can sort of mirror that and reflect back what you're hearing. Um, and then once so starting off with like really open ended questions such as as that, tell me about your sex life. And then, you know, as you're trying to get more specific information, you know, asking more closed ended questions about. Uh, you know, maybe if you need more details about their partners, their specific sexual um, behavioral practices, history of STIs, things of that nature. Right. And that's that's absolutely important. I love the idea of using the open-ended to, to close-ended approach and also uh, continuing to read uh, patients, patients who come from different cultures. Uh, even as we get into the conversation, particularly regarding practices, they may be more reticent to describe you know, some of the things they're, you know, that they're doing in terms of uh, their sexual sexual life. And, uh, and I find that, you know, therefore, taking a moment to slow down sometimes, you know, reassuring that uh, this is all part of a normal, you know, history that we take. And it's for the well-being of, of them and their partners as well, uh, sometimes can be a good help. Um, mm -hmm. in, in another patient-centered vein, um, there's this use of HIV self-testing. Um, which is a remarkable resource, particularly in uh, low resource settings, whether you're talking about um, an inner city urban environment or a very rural area, how can clinicians help connect individuals to use HIV uh, self-test kits and uh, get the follow-up care they need to, um, to act on the results? Mm -hmm. Yeah, HIV self-testing, you know, I think has become, especially during the pandemic, such an important um, screening tool that we have, um, you know, before the pandemic, um, you know, it was something that, you know, for folks who may have concern about privacy issues or confidentiality and want to test, you know, in the privacy of their home, it was, you know, a great option. And then, you know, as we dealt with the pandemic, you know, having folks, for instance, who um, might be at risk for HIV, but were, were unable to um, get access to, to care of folks on PrEP who needed um, HIV testing as part of their PrEP care, um, self-testing again became um, really um, important um, in that context. Um, and so um, 
you know, providers can definitely help with getting patients connected to uh, self-testing kits. Um, at um, When I was at the New York City actually Health Department, we actually partnered with community-based organizations as well as clinics in um, providing free self-test kits. Um, so we used, for instance, um, a code that was given to patients and clients so that they can then go to a website, enter the code, and have a self-test HIV self-test sent to them um, so that they could then test in the safety of their home and then they would report to us, you know, what the result was. So um, that often really helped with um, the barrier of, um, you know, the social distancing in terms of getting folks into the clinic. Um, and, you know, the CDC on its website um, has, you know, extensive information about HIV self-testing and um, for both for clinicians who want to learn more, but also for individuals who are interested in getting um, an HIV self-test um, to be able to locate um, organizations which may be providing them or public health departments um, that are in close proximity to them that may be offering um, test kits so that they can then um, get access um, to those. So um, it's, I think it's really exciting and I think um, the pandemic has really sort of helped to accelerate the use of self-test kits and hopefully we'll continue to still see them, um, you know, highly utilized. Yeah, self-testing is, is a fantastic resource. Uh, what resources are available to assist primary care clinicians in their uptake of HIV-related services across prevention, screening, treatment, and even specialty care? So the CDC has um, a website called HIV Nexus, which is basically a one-stop location for uh, clinical providers um, for information around HIV prevention and treatment, so the whole HIV continuum, and includes um, up-to-date tools and guidelines for um, providers' clinical practice, educational materials um, for patients, and also includes information specifically about HIV care for people um, of trans experience. There's also the Let's Stop HIV Together uh, website, which has information around HIV testing, prevention, treatment, stigma reduction uh, for both providers and for patients, as well as information about the federal um, and the HIV epidemic plan. So this is a really tremendous resource that I encourage um, clinical providers as well as patients um, and people who are interested in learning more at, about HIV to access. As we conclude this podcast episode, I would note that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently published new reports of HIV surveillance data. CDC estimates of annual HIV infections in the United States show hopeful signs of progress in recent years. Overall, estimated annual infections fell from 37,800 in 2015 to 34,800 in 2019. Much of this progress is likely due to larger declines in recent years among young men who have sex with men. From 2015 to 2019, the number of HIV infections among men who have sex with men decreased 9% overall. Infections among young men who have sex with men aged 13 to 24 years declined 33% overall, with declines in men of all races. However, young Black or African American and Hispanic or Latino men who have sex with men continue to be severely and disproportionately affected. The South also continues to be disproportionately affected, accounting for more than half of new HIV infections in 2019. At year-end 2019, an estimated 1.2 million persons aged 13 years and older were living with HIV infection, including about 13% of persons whose infection has not been diagnosed. 
Well, Dr. Blackstock, thank you so much for this great information today, and, and thank you for your ongoing advocacy and activism as well. Uh, it, it's really inspirational to see, and, and hopefully our audience enjoyed this presentation and, and comes away from this uh, really inspired to, to take on HIV um, and continue to fight that fight every day so we can reduce uh, those case numbers and uh, get the best care and, and the, best, the best culture-responsive care uh, we can for our, our patients with HIV. So, uh, so thank you again. Thank you to our audience. Um, we invite you to join us for the second part of this series produced in partnership with the Let's, Let's Stop HIV Together campaign. It's titled 40-Year Recognition of HIV, Strategies for Ending the HIV Epidemic and features Dr. Leandro Mena, a Let's Stop HIV Together clinical ambassador. Please visit PrimeMed's website and cdc.gov slash stop HIV together for HIV resources and information.